Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the HW Shift podcast, podcast number 23. Hello from England. It's getting sunny now. It's been very cloudy the whole day, but now it's, uh, it's nice and sunny. And we're back with a podcast on how we can better serve our future selves. And on the podcast, we have a few of our favorite guests, David, Emma, and Jeremy. Hi, everyone. Hello to everyone on the on the HRW Shift podcast. You may recognize me from the Biases and Sports podcast. This is my second podcast that I've done. My name is David Manchuk. I'm a behavioral science analyst here at HRW. I'm Emma Neville. I'm a behavioral scientist at HRW, also a regular on the podcast, so you may recognize my voice. But yeah, I'm excited to talk about time and our future selves today. It relates particularly to some background that I have in social anthropology. It's going to be a fun one. Hi, I'm Jeremy Kolaski. This is my second time on the podcast, behavioral science analyst at HRW with all you lovely people. Um, And yeah, I'm really excited to be back on the podcast my second time. Glad to have you back. And I'm Alexandra Petraki. I didn't introduce myself. And yeah, as I said today, we will be looking at how we can better serve our future selves. And we touched upon this in a couple of previous Shift podcasts, episodes 17 and 18 more specifically, where we looked at why we spend a lot of time on social media or doing activities that don't benefit us. And today we'll be looking specifically at what behavioral biases may be stopping us from making decisions that optimize future outcomes for ourselves. How can we use behavioral science to improve those future-oriented decisions and to get the best outcomes we can? And of course, we'll see how that is related to healthcare. But this topic all came about when David and I were chatting about uh, some work he did, specifically on the topic of linguistic savings. As I get it, David, linguistic savings tells us that depending on how our language is structured and what verbal tenses exist and how we talk about things, that can help determine how we see the future and what steps we take towards managing the future and what outcomes we get out of it. Is that right? Yeah, that that pretty much hits the nail right on the head, Alex. So to give a little bit of background, the question of how can we better serve our future selves is inherently related to the concept of time and future. And within that, the notion of how we conceptualize our present and future selves. The greater distance we sense between these two figures, our present and future selves, and the more that we think of them as distinct, the more we may display behaviors that place less value or priority on future outcomes or vice versa. Obviously, we have a strong sense of closeness with our present selves in a way that is easy to understand because our present selves are who we are right now. Of course, we want to make decisions that optimize our outcomes that we can instantly experience. Well, behavioral science would have you know that's not always a perfect relationship. It's one that's clearly at least intuitive. However, on the flip side, we do have a tendency to discount the outcomes or place less of a a priority on what may be similar behaviors if the benefits are enjoyed by our future selves um, instead of our present selves, given that the future self is a figure that, to some extent, is shown to be conceptualized as distinct or distant from our present. So we may neglect behaviors or decisions where the payoffs don't come until later, and we don't get to enjoy the payoffs right away because they're incurred by a future self that is distant from us. So we value these behaviors and outcomes less. Something called the linguistic savings hypothesis, which you very astutely introduced, Alex, offers one unique insight into this dynamic and how it may operate on a non-conscious level, namely how the native language you speak may be influencing your sense of closeness with your future self and ultimately, as as a result, your future-oriented behavior. So the linguistic savings hypothesis is a macro-behavioral economic study by Keith Chen. He's a well-known researcher at UCLA. 
And essentially what he did was look at languages in two established categories, separated on how they grammatically encode their reference to the feature. So that is, he separated languages in terms of whether they have a strong feature time reference or weak feature time reference. So two very broad categories that he, he looked at here. What exactly does that mean, the strong and weak feature time reference? Essentially, languages that have strong feature time reference would grammatically signify a greater distance between present and future. Well, for weak feature time reference languages, the separation is less distinct. The two are conveyed to be much, much closer. To give a small example of that in English, which English is a strong feature time reference language, we may say something like, it's going to rain tomorrow, or it will rain tomorrow. Meanwhile, an exact translation of a weak feature time reference language may say something like, it rains tomorrow. And by saying it rains instead of it's going to rain. They use a present tense to refer to the future, which Keith Chen hypothesized may non-consciously tighten that conceptual closeness between the present and future itself. Now, this may seem like something that's very inconsequential. And to be fair, when referring to this one example, it probably pretty much is in terms of eliciting specific behaviors in a vacuum. When you generalize this over the entirety of a language, these sort of things may start to become impactful in terms of the way that we conceive our own distance from the future. Uh, at least this is what Keith Chen hypothesized with the linguistic savings hypothesis. With his research work, he did find evidence for this. So in ways that are quite impactful actually for feature-oriented behaviors on a macroeconomic scale. For example, he found that native speakers of languages of weak feature time reference, so again, these are languages that don't have as much of a distinction between present and future and instead bring the two concepts closer together, these people are more likely to save more money, more likely to exercise, more likely to prioritize retirement. All the things, all these things display a greater prioritization of future selves and future outcomes. So this, of course, is, you know, after controlling for as many other variables as possible to sort of isolate this linguistic variable. So health outcomes, which we at HRW are particularly interested in, were shown to be affected as well. For example, weak feature time reference languages were those speakers were found to be less likely to smoke and less likely to be obese, once again, indicating a higher prioritization of that future self theoretically stemming from a greater sense of closeness to it. Did you want to jump in, Alex? Yeah, I was, I was going to say this is super, super interesting. So Romanian is my mother tongue, and we do use the present. Obviously, there are, there are future tenses, but in um, just regular familiar speech, we use the present to describe things that we will be doing maybe in a year or two or three. So we say, what do we do for New Year's next year? Instead of, you know, what we will be doing or what are we doing? So it just makes me feel that I live in a perpetual present. And I, I love hearing you talk about this, David, because I feel like it, it's a really good codification of how much our assumptions about the world are reflected in our language and how much variation there is around that across the globe. You mentioned that English is a strong future time reference language, right? That makes sense to me because um, the Oxford English Dictionary have given some data in the past that time is the most used noun in the English language. So it's clearly very important to us as English speakers. And it reminds me of some research I did when I was studying social anthropology at university about how different cultures have different notions of time. So we tend to think of time as this objective, 
quantitative force, but there's actually a huge amount of variation across the world in how we think of time, how we relate to time. And one particularly famous example in academia is the social anthropologist Evans Pritchard did some ethnographic fieldwork in the mid 20th century with the newer in South Sudan. So they're the second largest ethnic group in South Sudan. And what Evans Pritchard wrote about was that the newer have a cyclical view of time that's much more context dependent in how they tell time than the kind of linear clock time that we favor in the West. For example, when it comes to marking seasons in the West, we just have particular calendar dates that arbitrarily tell us that it's spring now or it's summer now, whereas the newer will base the start of a season on the completion of certain agricultural or domestic activities, which they repeat on a cycle. So their system of timekeeping reflects much more the context that they're in, their relation to nature and like the social activities that they're up to <laughs> at that time. And in their language, they actually don't have a word for time. So I think language tells us a lot about what our taken for granted beliefs are about the world and how we see ourselves in that world so this is a really interesting topic that is so crazy to think about that there's no word for time and time mm -hmm. is not linear it's like thinking about about infinity or you know the universe mm -hmm. it's uh, it's crazy yeah and i think when it comes to market research it's so important that we take this into account because what we're often interested in learning about and getting insights about is the future. We want to be able to predict how a product's going to do. We want to be able to predict barriers to uptake for product. So we're in some ways, we're trying to interview the future selves of our respondents, but we only have access to their present selves. So how can we bridge that kind of gap? And I think it's important for us as researchers to be very conscientious in how we approach things. Right. I, th I think it also underscores the point and the utility of behavioral science actually as well, just with the idea that, you know, for people who are, who are speakers of a native language, they don't know any other way, they would never consider another. And so their concept of time is something that they've never, of course, never taken the time to, to compare to others or to realize the way that it may be biasing the way that they conceive their future outcomes, because it's the only preset way that they've had of thinking. And so the utility of behavioral science and, and the purpose for us to analyze this is to sort of do the work for people who would never be able to see it for themselves. So I think that's a close match with behavioral science and a topic like this, where helping people and helping those who need it to reach those op optimal future outcomes really does need the assistance of behavioral science and, and, and those analyzing it from a third party view. Absolutely. And I wonder how that affects people who move somewhere, immigrants, and then start using a second language more predominantly. They think out loud, they use the second language. So I wonder if their behaviors change. Um, if the languages are different in terms of weak or uh, strong future time references. Let's do a self-funded study and find out. <laughs> yeah. I, I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> I can be the guinea pig. <laughs> I completely agree with you, David. And there are so many useful concepts in behavioral science that kind of get at this issue between thinking about our future selves versus our present selves. Um, one yeah. of the ones that people may have heard about more frequently is the intention action gap, which is the distance between our intentions and our actual behavior. So a really good example of this is how many people um, set New Year's resolutions at the start of a new year. And although they have the intention to change their behavior, it's less common than not for those things to actually be transformed into action. So that's what the intention action gap aims to capture. Yeah, and for my part as well, I think the intention action gap is a good place to start because 
it sort of symbolizes this bridge from what we were talking about, Emma, in, in terms of you know the entire picture of a language and how that may uh, influence our behaviors and our outcomes into those more concise, actionable, precise moments where behavioral science can make an intervention and and actually make an impact that is direct to one precise situation. So. For the purpose of behavioral science, what we had talked about before sort of offers a window and an example to this important concept. But when we start to identify other areas where that intention action gap exists in more specific phenomena, we can start to understand the biases that may underscore that and start to uproot them the best way we can. Yeah. Yes, it's also interesting. Uh, It actually reminds me of one of my favorite concepts in behavioral science, Uh, which is affective forecasting. Affective forecasting is our attempt at predicting our future emotional states. So often when we're making decisions, we'll imagine the future and we'll consult our future selves to try and predict whether our decision will benefit our future selves or not. For example, if we're trying to decide whether to move to California or not, we may imagine the tranquility of our future selves strolling by the beach every day, um, and we might make our decision based on that feeling. So I was actually first introduced to affective forecasting through the work of Daniel Kahneman, kind of in my Kahneman obsession phase. (laughs) And then subsequently, um, I read Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. And it's a really fun and kind of hilarious review of the bulk of Gilbert's and others' research on affective forecasting. And what they found was that we're not actually very good at affective forecasting. So our forecasts are prone to a speed of biases. So if we return to our moving to California example, we tend to focus on a few variables, such as the nice weather and the beach, and we ignore other variables, such as the high property costs and the deadlock traffic. And we also tend to focus only on a single snapshot of time. Uh, so for example, we might focus on the first few weeks after we move to California, and we neglect the factors that affect us over time, such as the fact that uh, a lot of us adapt to the weather and we might get bored of it. And we might even begin to miss the snow if we're from the East Coast. Yeah, effective forecasting is one of these fascinating things that we all do all the time. Um, and we kind of just take it for granted and we assume that we're doing it well and really we're often uh, stumbling into the same pitfalls over and over again. What behavioral scientist hasn't had a common obsession phase really? It's a rite of passage. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> I, re- I really love uh, to hear talk about affective forecasting and to think about it. I read um, the article by Wilson and Gilbert in which they talked about how we predict several things in relation to our emotions when we think of the future so we, we predict what emotions we'll be having like fear or excitement and then we'll predict whether the emotion will be positive or negative for us and then the intensity and duration and I think they found that the specific emotion and whether it's positive or not for us we usually get a more or less right but then the intensity and the duration we just get them really really wrong so it's like preparing for an exam assuming that it will go badly and we will be devastated if that goes badly. And then they will be super upset the whole summer until we start school again. And then actually we're just upset for a couple of days and we go back to our regular lives quite soon. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's very telling because it kind of gives you some insight on the pitfalls of our imagination. Because when we imagine things, we can't imagine a few weeks at a time. We can't imagine even a whole day. We just imagine a single moment in time. And for that reason, we're not going to be able to really imagine how something like doing badly on a test will affect us over time and how we'll deal with those emotions. Yeah. And I I think you've added as well, Jeremy, with, you know, talking about effective forecasting to 
the discussion about that distance between uh, future and present self by also adding the point that we ourselves have a bias at times to fail to have a true familiarity with what that future self is like at all. So it's not only about valuing that future self, but also having a, a sort of distance in terms of our concept of it in the first place. We're not really able to project exactly the extent to which it will resemble our present selves. And so that itself may, may signify a distance in terms of our knowledge about the future self, not only just the valuation. Yeah, there's a lot we don't know. And I think there's a lot of these really useful frameworks and concepts in behavioral science that give us a better grip on the dynamics of decision making across time. But I think one of the other really interesting implications of something like the linguistic savings hypothesis is what the limits of our behavioral science knowledge might be. And I'm thinking specifically of the kind of research in the last decade or at least on the biases in the population samples that we use when we do behavioral science research. So some of you may have heard of the WEIRD acronym, which stands for Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic. Essentially in 2010, it was discovered that about 96% of all participants in psychology experiments are from Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich, Democratic societies. And, and actually most were college students in the US who are studying psychology themselves. So this is a really kind of niche group of people that represent the vast majority of our uh, data sets from which we learn about these concepts in behavioral science. And I had a quick look for some updated numbers as 2010 really does feel like a world ago. But according to some research in 2018, less has changed in the last decade than I was hoping for. So in a study of cross-cultural psychology journals, which you'd hope to be a bit more diverse in the samples that they use, 96.7% of participants were from these Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic societies. And actually more than 85% were American. I think there's so much more we can do as researchers and as behavioral scientists in taking account of this very variation in our future time orientation amongst other ways in which we differ. Yeah, thanks, Emma. I always knew I was weird. Now I know I'm weird in more ways than one. <laughs> Certified weird. I to break it to you, David, but we're all really weird. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that, Emma. You know, and to build on that, one of, the, one of the ways that I have been thinking about this in terms of how we value our future selves as well and how differing contexts and different different cultural valuations as well come into play in that is the variance to which people experience different life circumstances and how that may affect their concept of their own future self. So a couple of variables that, that come to mind right away is, you know, imagine a 20-year-old versus a 70-year-old, how they're going to value and project their future selves and how that may affect their decision-making and, and their behaviors in, in the present. Another is just the life stability and, and the safety that they may experience. You know, some people are able to think and act with the idea that things will be relatively stable far down the line, while many others obviously don't have such a luxury. And so how does that affect the manner in which we conceptualize our future selves? And then downstream from that, how does that affect the way that we act in the present with that in mind? I was going to say, um, it gets me thinking. I also wonder, like, how does that change over the course of our lives? Like, how could a major life event like having a child or the death of a parent affect the way that we think about the future and how far we're projecting into the future when we make our um, decisions in the present moment? Yeah, and I think it's, a, it's also a big sociocultural aspect of how we see aging and how we see getting also some in some cultures that is celebrated and people they retire just see retirement as the start of a new life they have 
a lot of time on their hands. They can enjoy themselves in other places. It's not seen as um, in such a jolly in such a jolly way. So that affects how how we feel about where we are in our what we see as a linear time journey and how much we value our time and what our demands from our, that time are. So maybe it would be helpful for us to kind of bring it back around to healthcare because of course we make lots of decisions during our life and some of those are in the healthcare domain and particularly when it comes to thinking about future oriented decision making health is a big part of that conversation so i would love to hear your thoughts on where you've seen this gap between the present and future self and healthcare market research specifically yeah i think um there are actually some really interesting ways of talking about the relationship between the present and the future self that we haven't really discussed yet and one of those is by talking about empathy. So how much empathy does our present self have for our future self? And often our present self is actually not so concerned about our future self. And this is kind of when it's in a cold state. And often our present self is not really so uh, interested in the future self. It kind of just wants to be gratified in the moment. And that's when it's in a hot state. So for example, if we're starving and we really just want to eat something, get those calories, uh, we might overeat and then our future self will be vegged out on the couch. So for example, uh, we might be starving and we might eat way too much and we'll regret it later when our future self is on the couch and uh, unable to move. Uh, so this actually often comes up in healthcare. For example, if we're in a lot of pain and we just want to get rid of that pain as quickly as possible, we don't want to worry about making an appointment with an HCP, we might just try to self-medicate. Um, and this might not be the most effective way of going about things. And conversely, if we're in a cold state, we might not have empathy for what the hot state was like, how painful that was. So if we're prone to chronic migraines, so if we're prone to chronic migraines, our cold state might not really care about doing anything to prevent a future migraine because it's not really relevant at that moment. So that that hot and cold empathy gap often comes into play in healthcare. It's kind of our job to make it as easy as possible for the hot and cold states to empathize with one another and kind of to reduce all those practical and logistical barriers that can get in the way. Yeah, I think that, that can also have ramifications in taking medicine, for example. Someone feels better, they might just drop it and not finish the whole course because they forget how painful it was to be unwell. Yeah, it's such a great point. We see it all the time. And often one of the things that we recommend in trying to improve future-oriented decision-making is thinking about ways that you can make that hot state self or make that future self feel real and present in the moment. And one intervention I've seen work really well in the context of recurring pain is to take a video diary of when you're in that hot state. So when you're experiencing the peak of your symptoms, so that when you review that later on for before a doctor's appointment, for example, where those symptoms have faded, you can be reminded of just how visceral and how severe they were and convey that to your healthcare professional. Um, so that's just one way that we can help close that gap between the hot state and the cold state. So you can right. probably hear my um, laptop pinging in the background. <laughs> yeah, I... I think just to add up, add on to that as well, I think it's an interesting application when we think of behaviors such as addictions as well, where that empathy for the future self that we may have is essentially deleted. It's it's gone. The urgency of the present gratification is so strong that a lot of times people are unable to actually have that valuation and that empathy for that future person, which is of course mm -hmm. themselves. But it is at such a distance that 
they sometimes physically, sometimes mentally are not able anymore to to value that. I think so it's I think important that- to mention as well, like that that exists for a reason. Like that is a functional adaptation. So whenever I talk about this with my mom, she always makes the comment rudely that if she could remember and have empathy with how painful childbirth was, she would never have had more kids. And as the second child in life, I'm like, what do you mean? You wouldn't have had me if you could remember how bad it was. But I've heard that from lots of mothers. And I think it is an example of how that hot, cold empathy gap can be a useful adaptation when it comes to when it comes to health, but it can also be dysfunctional. So there's it does serve a function in some cases. Yeah, and another bias that we see a play in that effect, the way we see our present and future selves is optimism bias. And so with optimism bias, we tend to overestimate how probable a positive outcome is for us and underestimate the probability of a, a negative outcome. So we've all been there when we say, oh, I won't get the flu this season. I'll be fine. It won't happen to me. Uh, and we see that in healthcare. And an area where we see that this optimism bias really undermines how we think about future and how it is detrimental to our uh, goals to protect our future self is in um, concept and message testing where a message can test very well with the respondents and they can like it a lot, but actually that can undermine behavior change. Yeah, and it may not have the, the, the desired effect. It may not influence future uh, actions that benefit our future selves. Yeah, exactly. You can get lulled into a false sense of security and that optimism can actually undermine attempts to take preventative health behaviors or get tested for certain things. So it's very common in message and concept testing for us to come across those kinds of phenomenon. I guess it can make a condition look less threatening or diminish the impact that it can have on us if we don't take care of it or if we don't try to prevent it. And a good strategy, I think, for that, and one of my favorite things to use is the uh, the goal gradient effect. If we have a goal in mind, we tend to put more efforts and be more motivated if we are closer to the goal. But if that goal is quite far away or if not, it's not very well defined or if we don't know how we're going to get to achieve that, then it gets a bit muddy and we lose our psychological prowess, our stamina. So then in order to help patients achieve and ACPs engage with preventative behavior change to prevent worsening of conditions or onsets of conditions. It's helpful to divide that goal and that sort of end point into multiple clearly defined smaller goals. They're very, where we have a clear path to them. Uh, we have a clear step on how to achieve them. For example, if our goal for a patient who suffers from a respiratory disorder is to be able to, uh, let's make it very specific, is to be able to climb the three flights of stairs to get to their flat without taking the lift, we can say, okay, well, we can set an appointment in a few weeks and see how you're going with taking one flight of stairs and how you're dealing with walking around without climbing for a few minutes and have like smaller checkpoints before aiming for a, for a bigger goal. Other ways in which we can take preventive measures to achieve our goals and bridge, bridge that intention action gap are centered around commitment devices. These are tools that increase our commitment to something, to a cost. So for example, I, I really like going to the gym, but unless the gym is on my doorstep, I'm probably not going to go. And so the way I make myself go is by paying in advance for a class. And so far, I haven't missed one of them. Another device I use is I translate the British, the value of the British pounds in one or two other European currencies that I'm familiar with. And it's it, the value is way higher if you translate into other currencies, like in the Romanian currency or like or in euros. I think, whoa, I'm losing that much money. Yeah, I have to go. What yeah, about I you have, guys? I have a similar thing with I go to these like spin classes and you have to book them in advance and they're not cheap. So 
I book them when I'm really optimistic about how energetic I'm going to be on the weekend. Um, and by the time it rolls around and I want to back out, I've already committed the money and I can't get it back if I cancel. So that's usually a pretty good way of me <laughs> making me wake up on a Sunday morning. I also often invite friends to come with me. So I'll be letting down a friend if I don't show up. So those are some useful commitment devices for getting me out of bed. A good friend should be okay with it, right? <laughs> it depends how many times you do it, you know? <laughs> Just invite a different friend every time. <laughs> Once in a while is forgivable, but if it's every week. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I happen to be a religious Jew and religion is littered with commitment devices all over the place. So the one I'll talk about is the Sabbath. And pretty much for me, that means I can't use electricity for 24 hours. Uh, so in that time, I don't use my phone at all. And for me, that's amazing at curbing the smartphone addiction because any other day of the week, my phone is always there. I always want to reach for it no matter what I'm doing. And on the Sabbath, it doesn't even come into my mind as an option of something I could do. So it's really, it's amazing how that change in mindset brought about by that commitment device can really just kill that habit cold. Yeah. And I think, I think commitment devices for social media addiction is probably the most relatable thing for our listeners, given that we are a population of social media addicts by nature at this point. And for me, I basically use the, the nuclear option on my phone as well. So I actually have an app installed that doesn't allow me to reach social media from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And if I try to reach social media by you know putting in the passcode for that app that, that has the nuclear option on it, my friend will receive a notification saying that I tried to get on it. So I add that social pressure to my commitment of if I break it, then there's a little bit of shame involved. So that's me. <laughs> but once 8 p.m. rolls around, all bets are off. All bets are off. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you make up for it? Do you spend longer after 8 p.m.? <laughs> yeah, I actually, yeah, I sleep actually from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So that's <laughs> There's also one where you can make it so that someone gets a little bit of money, I think, or that a little bit of money gets donated to your worst, the worst charity ever that you really dislike. Stick.com. I'll give them a shout out. Is that? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but if you're looking for friends to get the money, I'll, I'll volunteer. I'll do this for, <laughs> for your benefit. Yeah. I remember there was one as well where little trees would be growing when you weren't using oh, it. I've got that. And then yeah. once you start using it, the trees all get killed off. Your forest dies. <gasps> yeah, I've got that. It's called forest. I, I killed two trees in my life. One was when my dad called me and I was like, oh, this has got to be important. And he called just to say hi. And I said, oh, come on, dad, I killed the tree for you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> But you can't go around it. So there is a way to use your phone without killing the trees. Yeah, there's often a way to get around it. Like um, when I was studying for my exams, this was at the time where Facebook was still popular. And I downloaded a some kind of software that would like get rid of your newsfeed and instead put just like a motivational quote. But I very quickly learned that if you open an incognito tab, it wouldn't work. So <laughs> I would be kind of sneaking around my own commitment devices. So I've also had that exact one, but it doesn't work for Google Chrome. It only works for Microsoft Edge incognito. And I once found this out and I was like, well, now I can never go back. Well, that brings us to an end. Thank you everyone for listening to us and for being with us on yet another podcast. We'd love to hear your commitment devices or times where you wish you had used some commitment devices. So if you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at HRWShift or you can email us at shift.hrwhealthcare.com. But for now, it's goodbye from me, Alex. Goodbye from me, Emma. Goodbye from me, David. Goodbye from me, Jeremy. <laughs>